The Guardian. The 20th century was a golden age for physics. From Einstein, we had not one, but two theories of relativity. They defined mass and energy as two sides of the same coin and radically reshaped our notions of space, time and gravity. We also got quantum mechanics and with it, a way of predicting the often baffling and counterintuitive behavior of the world at the subatomic level. But what quantum mechanics really tells us about the nature of reality is still hotly contested. One possible answer is known as the many worlds interpretation. When you interact with an electron, the wave function becomes a superposition of different universes. And the nice thing is that those different parts of the superposition, the individual universes, don't interact with each other. There's no way you can talk to the versions of you in other branches of the wave function. So for all intents and purposes, they become separate worlds. Worried? You shouldn't be. This week, we've got physicist Sean Carroll to talk us through it all. And despite what you might think, Sean believes that quantum isn't the terrifying, mysterious beast it's often made out to be. Quantum mechanics in general, and many worlds in particular, do deviate quite severely from our everyday intuitions. And therefore, it requires some work and some open-mindedness and some patience to really think through what these implications are. I'm Ian Sample. Welcome to Science Weekly. Button has now been pushed. I'm now recording, yes. Sean Carroll is a theoretical physicist at the California Institute of Technology. His latest book, Something Deeply Hidden, is an attempt to demystify quantum mechanics and what it might tell us about reality. Before we get to all that, I wanted to know how he ended up in physics in the first place. Sean, how did physics first come into your life? What was it about the subject that first really grabbed you? Yeah, I was a young kid. I was like 10 years old, and uh, it was just literally reading popular physics books, like the same kind that I now write. You know, I didn't have any scientists in my family. I had teachers who were very supportive, but none of them were really into science or anything. I just, you know, went to the local public library and, and read everything I could get my hands on about black holes and particle physics and the Big Bang. Do you remember the first time you came across quantum physics, though? Quantum physics, you know, I'm sure that it was there early on. You know, one of the famous books that I read was One, Two, Three, Infinity by George Gamow. Um, another one, which is not famous but equally good, was a little one called High Energy Physics, all about all these particles being created. But I didn't really get especially into quantum mechanics per se uh, as a youngster. Even when I was an undergraduate learning it, it was the very traditional, here's the Schrodinger equation, you should solve it in a million different cases. The true mysteries of quantum mechanics began slowly dawning on me when I was a graduate student, and I haven't actually started working on it professionally until the last couple of years. In the prologue to your new book, Something Deeply Hidden, you quote Richard Feynman, who famously wrote this line about nobody understanding quantum mechanics. Do you understand it? You know, I, I did get a couple of emails from friends of mine saying, what do you mean? I understand quantum mechanics. But nevertheless, I think that the phrase 
nobody understands quantum mechanics makes sense if, if you think of it as nobody thinks anyone else understands quantum mechanics. That is to say, <laughs> at the very least, we don't have a consensus about certain very, very important issues in quantum mechanics within the physics community. The same way that we have a perfect consensus about certain issues about you know cosmology or relativity and so forth. And so you can't say, even if anyone does understand quantum mechanics, you can't say that as a field, we physicists understand it. Something Feynman was alluding to is the fact that quantum mechanics is really hard to understand on an intuitive level. And that's because the reality it describes is so different from the one framed by classical physics that's so familiar to us. In classical physics, an object can be in one place at a time. But in quantum physics, the location of an object, let's say an electron, is uncertain. There's a chance of it being here, but also a chance of it being there. Only when we attempt to measure where the electron is does the probability collapse and the electron appears in just one spot. Einstein said about the Trying to decipher why this happens is as live a debate today as it was back in the 1920s. Well, Einstein in particular, you know, he gets a bad rap because there's this idea that by the time quantum mechanics came on the scene, he was a little bit older, he was a little bit more conservative, unwilling to embrace the new knowledge. But in fact, Einstein understood quantum mechanics as well as anybody, and he made major contributions to it. He just didn't think it was the final answer. He just didn't think that the interpretation that was put forward, what we now call the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, truly made sense because it seemed to say that there's one way that systems act when you're not looking at them and a totally another way that they act when you are looking at them. And that seems a little bit crazy. And so he made his discomfort very precise by showing that if you observe a particle right here, right now, in the right circumstances, that can seem to affect a particle light years away, right now. And since he was Einstein, since he had invented relativity, he knew that that sounded wrong. Now, it turns out that you can't actually use that connection to send information in any sort, so it doesn't really violate the letter of the law in relativity, but it does kind of violate the spirit of it. People often talk about the measurement problem in quantum mechanics. What is that for our listeners? Yeah, the measurement problem is precisely this fact that, number one, in the textbook treatment of quantum mechanics... There's a set of rules for what the system does when you're not looking at it, and another set of rules for what happens when you observe it. And that's intrinsically weird, right, all by itself. Why in the world should observing it or measuring it be something special? And then the other thing is those rules are vague. They say that, you know, when a classical observer measures a quantum system, its state changes randomly and instantaneously without ever quite giving details about what it means to be a classical observer, what it means to measure something, how quickly it happens. So it's good enough for making predictions that we can use to build technology or do particle physics, but it's not really a deep understanding of how nature works. You've already talked about the Copenhagen interpretation. Can you flesh that out a little bit? What is that interpretation and why even are physicists talking about an interpretation? It sounds like a phrase you use more for art or literature. It does, and it's probably a bad word, but it, it fits the Copenhagen interpretation since in some sense, the Copenhagen interpretation is purported to be a way of thinking about quantum mechanics. And that way is, you know, exactly as I said, there's a, a crucial part of the theory, which is the act of measurement, the act of observation. And that 
role is played in some vague way. And so the, the Copenhagen interpretation is a way of thinking that says we should think about people as really classical, as really not quantum at all, but they observe quantum systems and then there's some sort of dividing line in between them. Whereas in the more modern way of thinking, we have other theories. The many worlds theory is my favorite, but there's other theories like Bohmian mechanics and so forth that are real, true, complete physical theories with different variables doing different things. So we're no longer in a situation where we're really debating over interpretations. It should be said that this Copenhagen interpretation is still, according to a 2016 survey from Aarhus University in Denmark, physicists' favoured interpretation of quantum mechanics, with over a third choosing it. But it's not for Sean. Can you just take our listeners through that many worlds interpretation? Where does it come from? What does it say? Yeah, it gets a bad rap a little bit because of the name many worlds. It sounds like we're adding a bunch of parallel universes to quantum mechanics. But in fact, this way of thinking, which was invented by Hugh Everett when he was a graduate student in the 1950s, really takes things away from the conventional Copenhagen interpretation. Remember, Copenhagen posits these separate rules for what happens when you measure a quantum mechanical system. All Everett does is say you don't need those separate rules. Just erase them. Just take quantum mechanics at face value. There are wave functions and they... They evolve over time according to this equation, which we call the Schrodinger equation. And it is from those rules, inevitably a consequence, that when a big macroscopic thing interacts and becomes entangled with a tiny quantum thing, the wave function of the universe, the way that we describe the universe as a whole, splits into multiple branches. It's not that you know, you observe an electron and it's either spinning clockwise or counterclockwise and you don't know which one it was. It's that both results become real, but they become real in separate worlds. And again, this possibility was always there in the formalism of quantum mechanics. People bent over backwards to get rid of the excess worlds and Everett just said, you don't need to do that because they're not bothering you. Leave them alone. But just to ask you something uh, that's very basic here for you, and that is, what is a wave function of an object? What does it mean for an object to have a wave function? And what does it then mean for that wave function to be tied up with another object? Yeah, well, these are the deep questions, right? The way I like to think about it is one of the successes of early 20th century physics was understanding the atom. You know, there's the Rutherford model of the atom where there's a nucleus at the center where we now know it's made of protons and neutrons and that's heavy. And then there are these very light electrons orbiting around it. The problem is when these electrons are orbiting really, really quickly, they should be giving off light and spiraling into the center and atoms should collapse and matter should be completely unstable. So the idea was if instead of thinking of the electron as a little particle that is orbiting really rapidly the nucleus, if we think of it as a wave, if it's spread out, then it can settle into some static configuration and it won't collapse. And there's a discrete set of such configurations, much like when you pluck a guitar string or, a vi or you bow a violin, there's sort of the fundamental frequency and then there are harmonics over that. Just like that, the electron's wave function can have different configurations in the atom, which is why electrons can have different amounts of energy. 
And it was Schrodinger who came up with this equation to govern wave functions. And he had this hope, he had this aspiration that once you understood his equation, you would see that electrons, even though they're described by waves, they act particle-like in some circumstances. The problem is that when we look at electrons, we don't see wave functions. We see them look like particles. They leave tracks in a detector. So that's where this weird split came in quantum mechanics between thinking of electrons as waves when we're not looking at them, even though they look like particles when we do. So Everett's answer to that was from quantum entanglement. Other people point out, Einstein in particular, that there's not separate wave functions for the electron and U and so forth. There's only one wave function for the entire universe. So rather than saying that the electron is sort of spreading out in a wave and then when you look at it, it instantly collapses and changes, Everett says, you have a wave function too, or rather, even to be more precise, you and the electron are both part of the wave function of the universe. And what actually happens when you observe the electron is you become entangled with it, which is to say, there's part of the wave function where the electron is moving in that direction, and you observed it in that direction. There's a part where it's moving in some other direction, and you observed it that way, and so forth. So it's this phenomenon of entanglement, because there's only one wave function for the whole universe and you are part of it, that's what makes the branching into worlds possible. If you're a bit lost, you're not the only one. After this short break, I'll push Sean a bit more on exactly what many worlds does and doesn't say. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Science Weekly. This week I spoke with theoretical physicist Sean Carroll, whose latest book, Something Deeply Hidden, argues that the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics is being overlooked within his field. According to the 2016 survey I mentioned earlier, only 6% of the physicists polled chose many worlds as their favorite interpretation of quantum mechanics. One of the things people always struggle with when it comes to the many worlds interpretation is what is really meant by saying the world branches, that the universe branches. What does that phrase actually mean in reality? Yeah, you know, it's a, just a feature of quantum mechanics. Again, this is a prediction of the formalism, not something we put in. When you have a quantum system that can be in a superposition, like an electron can be in a superposition of spinning clockwise and spinning counterclockwise. That's just true. Everyone agrees with that, okay? If you agree with that, then you should be able to believe that people can be in superpositions of having seen the electron spin clockwise and having seen it spin counterclockwise. And likewise, the whole universe can be in superpositions. And all Everett does is point out that these possibilities very naturally come to pass in the ordinary happenings of things. When you interact with an electron, the wave function becomes a superposition of different universes. And the nice thing is that those different parts of the superposition, the individual universes, don't interact with each other. There's no way you can talk to the versions of you in other branches of the wave function. So for all intents and purposes, they become separate worlds. But does this imply, the many worlds interpretation, does it imply that there's 
an ongoing sort of exponential explosion in the number of worlds, whatever we mean by world. Yeah, it absolutely does. The number of worlds is growing very, very rapidly. There's sort of a total amount of worldness in the wave function. So what's really happening is not that you're duplicating the world over and over again, but that you're slicing it into thinner and thinner versions of itself, right? It's like slicing a cake into thinner and thinner slices, and every every slice looks almost like the other slices, but they're basically, uh, the total amount of cake is conserved. So again, this is just what the equations predict, and the question is, are we willing to face up to it? Does that mean there's a limit to the number of times, you know, a world can be sliced up, if you like? You know, that's a really good question, and the answer is we don't know. In the simplest version, believe it or not, there's an infinite number of worlds that you can fit in, so there's no limit to how many times it can be sliced up. It's very similar to saying how many positions could an electron have in classical mechanics. You know, it, there's an infinite number of points in space, right? So that's not surprising that when you look at an electron... There's an infinite number of different answers you could get, and therefore an infinite number of different worlds. But honestly, we don't know enough about fundamental physics to say that for sure. It might be that crazy things like quantum gravity actually give us only a finite number of worlds to play with. What we do know is that there's an awful lot of worlds. We're not in any danger of running out of them anytime soon. I want to be clear on on one thing about what this theory, what this interpretation does and, and doesn't mean. I mean, does it suggest that there are copies of planets and stars and people that are continuously actually being created at an ever increasing rate, but that all of it's invisible? Yes, it completely does uh, imply exactly that. I mean, it happens both because we make it happen if we observe a quantum system uh, intentionally, but it happens all the time whether you like it or not. You know, one fun little factoid is that in a typical human body, there are roughly 5,000 radioactive decays every second. You know, you don't notice. It's not really a lot compared to the number of atoms in your body, but there's some little radioactive iodide and other uh, elements in your body, and they decay. And every time they decay, that indicates that there's part of the wave function where that atom decayed and part where it didn't, so that branches the universe 5,000 times a second. It's actually even more than that, but that gives you a, a feeling for how quickly it happens. Can you forgive people, though, for thinking this is a bit nuts? Oh, absolutely. I, I totally forgive them. And, you know, look, I think that it's fair to, to promote the worry that it's a bit nuts to a slightly more metaphysically respectable position, which says, you're asking a lot of us to take the equations that seriously. So the equations are unambiguous. The equations say something. And so the question is, do we have a right to extrapolate these equations way beyond where we can directly observe them. And I would say that the most conservative thing is to do exactly that. You know, unless we know better, we should believe the equations that we have. Now, others might disagree, which is fine. That's why we should be thinking and arguing about this. But unless you're invoking something different to four-dimensional space-time, um, wh you know, wh where is this stuff it is totally different than four-dimensional space-time. <laughs> it's asking, you know, where is the universe located? The universe is not the kind of thing that has a location, right? The universe is not sitting inside space. So these other versions of the universe are not located anywhere. They just exist in parallel to us. Space exists in the universe, not the other way around. But, but at some point you need to say where if all these planets and stars and people and life and everything else is being created at light speed out the blue every, you know, 
exponentially. It has to be somewhere. No, it really doesn't. It's like saying, where's the number five? You know, that's, there are things to which the idea of having a location doesn't really apply. It's not like the number five, though. I mean, a person is not so much a concept as a lump of atoms. A f five is a mathematical concept. But an entire universe is not a lump of atoms. Uh, the universe, I mean, I, if, if you want some mathematical answer, these universes exist in Hilbert space. They exist in the <laughs> set of all possible wave functions of the universe. But there is no bigger version of four-dimensional space in which you find these universes. So it's better to just think of them as simul simultaneously existing without asking where they are. I'm deeply unsatisfied with that answer, Sean. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Not with you, with, with physics, with maths and my own understanding <laughs> primarily. Happily, I wrote a book you can read to convince you of how wonderful this is. <laughs> it's a tough one to get your head around, and I confess I'm still struggling with it. But despite sounding a tad sci-fi, it's getting serious consideration in the world of theoretical physics. But as with any theory or interpretation, I wanted to know whether this many-worlds approach might lead us to any new insights. Interestingly, Sean ties it in with the very fabric of reality. Can you walk us through how it might help understand what space-time is, where it comes from? Yeah, you know, we, we have this long-standing problem puzzle in fundamental physics, how to include gravity under the quantum mechanical umbrella. And we've had this procedure that has worked well for all of the other parts of particle physics and fundamental physics, whether it's electromagnetism or the nuclear forces or whatever, which is to start with a classical theory and then quantize it. We have a set of rules for taking a classical model and turning it into a quantum theory. But those don't seem to work for general relativity, for our best theory of gravity, uh, the idea from Einstein that gravity is the curvature of space-time itself. So my suggestion is, you know, nature doesn't start with a classical theory and then quantize it. Nature is just quantum from the start. So maybe we should follow nature's lead and actually think about quantum theories from the start without any classical precursor, then understand the emergence of a classical space-time geometry as an approximation. So extract the classical world we see from a truly quantum mechanical wave function. And if that's your strategy, it's clear that Everettian quantum mechanics is the best interpretation to work with because all the other formulations of quantum theory rely on some classical notions from the start, whereas Everett is fully quantum from the start. And are you or other physicists having some progress in finding the sort of the origins or trying to build up where space-time comes from by starting at that point? I think so. You know, I'm biased because I'm doing it myself, right? <laughs> but um, progress is slow because it's very hard and we're not exactly guided by experiment here. There's no direct experimental data to help us along the way. But what we've been able to do is to show, you know, under certain very reasonable assumptions, you can actually show that there's an emergent geometry to space-time and that geometry very naturally obeys Einstein's equation for general relativity. The trick is, of course, that what I think of as very reasonable assumptions might not be correct, much less reasonable. So there's a tremendous amount of work to do to make this approach more respectable. But the first, the early indications, I would say, are very promising. And does that seem to be something that will at some point be testable? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, part of our program is to figure out whether or not this version of quantum gravity 
predicts experimentally accessible phenomena. So there could be, you know, tiny, tiny variations in the speed of light for wavelengths of light that are different from each other. Or there could be tiny effects in gravitational waves or black holes. These are new venues that are opening up observationally, and we can cross our fingers and hope that this version of quantum gravity makes different predictions for them. And if this can be achieved, if you can come up with some theory of gravity from quantum mechanics, does that then get you a long way or even all the way to having one underlying theory for everything? Well, it gets us a tiny bit of the way, I would say. It's not most of the way, because part of what you want is to emerge not only space-time, but the specific fields and particles and forces that live in space-time in the standard model of particle physics. Now, the specifics of the standard model of particle physics are very specific, as you know, as well as I do. Um, there's a lot of fields. They interact in a very particular way. There's certain symmetries that are crucially important. To see all that magically pop out of some fundamentally quantum mechanical theory, where you didn't put in all these fields and particles, that would be wonderful, but I don't think we're, uh, that's not going to happen in the next two years. Let's put it that way. Speaking to Sean about all of this, I found myself very much in agreement with Feynman when he spoke about the difficult and mysterious nature of quantum mechanics. But one of the main messages in Sean's new book is that scientists need to make quantum more accessible to the non-physicists among us. I finished our chat by asking him why. Well, you know, it is the best theory of nature that we have. I think that um, one of the things I do in the book when I was doing research for it, I went to Amazon and I typed in the word quantum into the search bar just to see all the titles of books that had quantum in them. And, you know, it's as bad as you expect. It's worse than you expect, right? I mean, quantum yoga, quantum healing, quantum therapy, quantum leadership, all these things. <laughs> and I think that the idea of quantum mechanics is crucial for physicists, but it's very misused in the public domain. And part of that it's because we physicists tend to emphasize how weird and spooky it is rather than the fact that it's just science. It's perfectly understandable if we just put our minds to it. But from the outside, it does still seem very counterintuitive, very difficult to get one's head around unless one's sort of very well sort of trained in this area. You've got your work cut out. <laughs> yeah, we do, you know, but that's okay. I'm not, I'm not going to shy away from uh, doing the work. I, you know, I, I, I just want to send out the message that it's not unintelligible. It's not beyond our grasp. Quantum mechanics in general, and many worlds in particular, do deviate quite severely from our everyday intuitions. And therefore, it requires some work and some open-mindedness and some patience to really think through what these implications are. But it can be done, you know, like, if you, like I said uh, elsewhere, if you can balance your checkbook, you can understand quantum mechanics. If you're not convinced, have a read of Sean's new book. We'll include a link in the episode's description at theguardian.com. Special thanks to Sean Carroll for joining us and to you for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.